welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Father, we, uh, we come before you as those who are thankful for your son's work, as we've heard about and we've sang about so far. Lord, we're thankful for his work and saving us from our sins. And uh, Lord, we're very thankful, too, that you've even assembled these people to gather with, Lord. This is a sign of your love for us, that you've not left us alone. You've sent your spirit to indwell us, and you've provided a church, a, a body of people to, to be stirred up by, to be encouraged by, to use our gifts to bless. And we're just super thankful for this gift of the church. Lord, you are good to us. You continue to pursue us both by your spirit and by the people you've put in our lives. And we're so thankful for that. We pray, Lord, as we open your word, that you would cause us to be more and more alive to you. We pray for those who don't yet know you, Lord, that their eyes would be open to your beauty. And we also pray for those of us who have known you for quite some time and were just easily drawn away, easily hardened, easily grow cold to you. And so we pray, Lord, as Paul talked about, that you who have said, let light shine out of darkness, that you would shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we pray for that work this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes to your goodness, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that we would just be thrilled and warmed and excited and stirred to love you above all else, and that that would transform us that would cause us to love all those around us and to speak of you boldly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting our Advent series actually next week. So this is just like a prequel. And I say that because of the fairly cold response that Josh was getting towards Christmas. I'm a little concerned. I think maybe you guys need to watch Elf or something. I don't know what your need is this morning, but, um, but I'm a little bit concerned. It just seemed a little quiet. A little, you know, but we are starting an Advent series, and we're starting our Advent series next Sunday. Advent is a traditional church practice to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Those of you who have lived for any length of time, which is all of you, know that you can end up in Christmas, you can end up at the end of the day wondering what you've been doing, whether you really kind of lost sight of what this is all about. And so Advent keeps us from doing that. Advent means arrival. During this year, during our Advent series, we're going to be looking at how God prepared his Old Testament people for the arrival of Jesus, and that he did it through a series of covenants. A covenant, guys, is a promise, and God made multiple covenants through his people throughout history to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to uh, Moses and to David and through the prophets. And each week of this series, we're going to look at a different covenant and see how it points forward to Christ. Sound cool? And then this artwork actually Aaron did for us. And actually the, the artwork in this is not all of it, but these images are Aaron's. And then Josh didn't mention this, but he wrote this thing. I mean, he didn't write the parts that were like, come all ye faithful and the Jesus storybook Bible part. But he wrote the rest of it and he compiled this for you guys so that it would dovetail with our series. So it's a way to reinforce at home what you're doing. And especially for you men, for you fathers and husbands, this is a chance for you if you're not really used to kind of leading your family in the things of the Lord and you're looking for like an on-ramp for that, this would be a great on-ramp for this. So everywhere during Advent, you could at dinner on Sunday night or Saturday night, you could bust this out, get out the candles, kind of lead your family in family worship, and it'd be a great 
opportunity to start with some very clear things to do, and that habit can continue. So this is your chance. You're like, I haven't really been doing that. I know I should lead my family in the things of the Lord. Here's a great opportunity. We're giving you the guides. We're officially saying, this is you. You do this, okay? And as, as if you needed that from us, but there you go. So each week, we're going to look at a different part of each a different covenant and see how it points forward to Christ. You're going to have an opportunity, like Josh talked about, to do a reading, do a song, an activity, light a candle. It's going to be great. So you'll start that next week. So the covenants, guys, these covenants are the backbone of God's working through history. God has worked through history through a series of covenants. And this morning, I want to just do a prequel. I want to go to the beginning. Actually, I want to go before the beginning. I want to go before time even and start at the very, very beginning, before the beginning. I want to start with God and creation. So we're going to be looking at verses 26 and on in the text that David read. And we want to just ask, what kind of God is God? What kind of God is God? And we find out from this text that God is a triune God. Look at verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make. Let's just stop there. Then God, singular, said, let us make. This is interesting, isn't it? Did you notice that the one true God is in us? The one God is in us. God is one God eternally existing as three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. God is Trinity. And one other thing, we have a resource for you guys. I have five of these. It's Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, an introduction to the Christian faith. It's about the Trinity. It's a great book on the Trinity. And if there's five of you here that would say, I'm going to read this book. I'm actually going to read it, not use it as a decoration, but I'm going to like read it in the next few weeks. We'd like to give you these for free. And I'm going to hand them to Gabe over here, this very introverted person. I'm going to set them here and you'll come get them. But if you want one, come to Gabe and grab that. We'd love for you to read it and dig into who God is. So God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Think about that. Think about God before there was any of this, before there was space or time or matter, anything, just God. He's the only being existing. What do you think when you think of that? What some people think is, they think, what was he doing? Right? Right? What was he doing? Was he bored? Was he lonely? What was God doing before he made all this? The USC philosophy professor, Dallas Willard, he was once asked this question, what was God doing before creation? This was his answer. He was enjoying themselves. What was God doing before creation? He was enjoying themselves, which is terrible English. The spell checker doesn't like it, you know, when you write that out. But that's exactly right. God was enjoying within the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored within the Trinity. We're not better company. We're not more interesting than the persons of the Trinity. Listen to what Jesus said about before the beginning. He said this in John 17. Father, I desire that they also, that's you guys, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what do we have before the foundation of the world? We have a relationship of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. God was not lonely. He had the best possible company. He had the richest possible fellowship. And you know, guys, that any other kind of God would have created the world out of need, okay? Because if you have this lonely, isolated, solitary God, he would have created the world out of need, right? But the triune God created all of this out of an overflow of the love and joy with which he had in the persons of the Trinity. There was so much love and joy and 
fellowship that God desired to actually share that with others, with other beings which he would make. And so he made it as a gift. It's like a fountain that's filled to the brim. It splashes out onto the dry ground and vegetation grows. Our world came from the overflow, from the excesses of their happiness. The excesses of the happiness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is the cause why all this exists. A God who wasn't triune like God is couldn't even be a God of love. Because a God that isn't triune before he created would not have anyone to love. You think about some of the false gods like Allah and others that are solitary beings. Allah can't be a God of love because he would have no one to love before he created the world. Our God has eternally experienced and shared love between the persons of the Trinity. Our God is eternally others-focused. Isn't that amazing? Our God is eternally others-focused. The whole world, everything in it, including you, is an overflow of the love and joy between the persons of the Trinity. Just like children are an overflow of the pleasure between a husband and a wife, this whole world and all of us are the spillover, the creative spillover of the love and pleasure between the persons of the Trinity, including, I mean, everything here from that love, including real-life human beings that will live forever. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever thought about that for your own marriage? Like, that's kind of strange, that the love between you like, creates real-life human beings that will live forever? It's a picture of God's love within the Trinity, that he created all of this out of the overflow of his love. There's some fundamental questions that everybody needs to ask about the world and to understand. And the four questions I brought them up before are, where did this all come from? How did this go wrong? Because we all kind of know it did. How will this world be set right? How can I be set right? Four fundamental questions every worldview needs to be able to answer is, where did this all come from? What went wrong? How can this be set right? How will I be set right? And we should look for those kinds of conversation on-ramps as we're talking to non-Christians because we have the most satisfying answers to all four of those questions. And it turns out that most of the worldviews out there do not have even have answers to most of those questions. So the most satisfying answer to the question, where did we all come from, is that God made it. God made this. And there's actually three options, guys. It's actually this simple. There are three options to where the universe came from. I know this starts heavy, but it gets great. So three possible options. One is the physical universe itself could be eternal. So matter is eternal. Didn't need a creation because it's always been. Second option, the physical universe had a beginning, but it sprang from absolutely nothing. And we say nothing, it's got to be absolutely nothing. No gravity, no space, no time, nothing, nothing, okay? No cheating. Or the physical universe had a beginning and it was made by something or someone outside of itself, something non-physical. So you either have, it always existed, it popped out of nothing, or it was made by something or someone that's not physical, that's outside of the universe. We know that since the 60s, we know scientifically that number one is not right. There's abundant scientific proof that the physical universe did come into being. It hasn't always existed. That was kind of thought before. And it was kind of convenient because then you don't need a God because you're like, it's always been here. What's the explanation needed? Well, there's an explanation needed now. Second one, the universe had a beginning, but it sprang from nothing. That one's been kind of more popular lately. There was a, a book by Stephen Hawking where he talked about how because there is gravity, that at some point the universe would have inevitably sprang from nothing. You can kind of read it to unpack that. The problem with that is that he didn't start with nothing, okay? Started with gravity, started with physical laws, started with there being a something. Notice, guys, too, that number two would not be a great explanation of where the universe came from. 
It's kind of the opposite of an explanation. When you're asking where something came from and you say it popped out of nothing, that's not actually a great explanation. It's actually the opposite of an explanation. So what we have is three. We have that the universe was made by something or someone outside of itself. I love what Glenn Shrivener said. He said, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. People are like, ah, I can't really believe in the virgin birth. You believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos, which is a much bigger problem. Option number three actually makes the most sense, that it was created by something or someone outside of the universe, which sounds a lot like Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And guys, not only is the biblical story actually make the most sense, but it's a way better story. (laughs) It not only makes more sense, but it's a more satisfying story that God created the world and everything in it out of an overflow of joy within the persons of the Trinity, a joy that they wanted to share. Turns out that God is eternally desiring to share himself with others, and that's why you were made, because he wanted to share his goodness with you. Isn't that amazing? You know God was that good? And this good and happy God, guys, made us in his image. Take a look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You were made in God's image, in his likeness. In ancient times, rulers would put little statues or little images of themselves all over their land to show this world is owned by me. Here's a little picture of me. Here's a little statue of me. Spread them all over so you wouldn't forget who the ruler of that land was. What God has done is he has spread us all over the world as his image bearers to reflect who he is. You know, the scriptures prohibit us from making images of God because God has made us as his images in the world. And this is why, guys, we are commanded to honor and love all people. We're commanded to honor and love all people because all people are made in the image of God. And when we love our neighbor, we're loving God who, who bear his image, right? Regardless of their abilities or disabilities or of their status or gender or race or wealth or, you know, even their level of development, we honor all human beings because they are stamped with the image of God. They are his image bearers. When we attack another human being, we're attacking God indirectly because we're attacking his image bearer. And guys, this whole idea of like human rights and that everybody's valuable, this is something that somehow we tend to think is self-evident. I think our founding documents even say something like that. That the rights of human beings are self-evident. They're not self-evident, guys. In fact, if you look through history, humanity was not going to discover them, ever. They were not on their way to discovering that every single person is valuable. Uh, Human rights are actually something that weren't discovered. They're something that were proclaimed. It was proclaimed through scripture. It was proclaimed especially in the coming of Jesus Christ, quite suddenly and unexpectedly. This whole idea of us being made in the image of God and all having value and worth and to be protected was a revolutionary idea. You think back to Greco-Roman culture, and this was not a thing, right? Aristotle taught that slaves were tools That culture believed that strong men could take advantage of any man or woman they wanted to and do whatever they wanted to them. The Greco-Roman culture before Christ was not a place to have a Me Too movement because the kind of behavior of that, the Harvey Weinstein type behavior, was completely normal and acceptable in that culture. And then in, you have as this shot, Christianity, that trumpets these values that every human being is made in the image of God. 
And of course, we haven't treated everybody like they're made in the image of God. But that impulse to do so, it comes from Scripture. You won't find it anywhere else. You won't find it in science. You won't find it in philosophy. You won't have it in human history anywhere except from Scripture. And our ability to critique injustice can only come from Scripture. God is good. He created us in his image. He also created us male and female. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is interesting. So God doesn't just create one kind of human. He creates two kinds of humans. He creates male and female, equal in value because they both bear God's image and yet diverse in their qualities and in their roles. God made husbands and wives and men and women complementary to one another. Isn't that an amazing gift? Have you guys thought back and thought about it? I mean, men, are you glad that God didn't just create a whole world full of dudes? Are you guys glad about that? It's amazing, right? This is an amazing gift. This is something we kind of don't think about often enough. For women, aren't you glad that God did not make just a world full of women? It's amazing, isn't it, that God would make both men and women, and he makes men and women to reflect something about him, to image forth something about him that's different one another. So men reflect one aspect of God's character, women reflect other aspects, and our unity and equality and yet our diversity of roles is a picture of the Trinity, especially in marriage. When you see a husband and a wife and you see them both equal and unified and both equal in God's sight and yet living out different roles that are complementary, it's a picture of the life within the Trinity. And God was doing something in showing himself through making men male and female. And I know, guys, in our culture, has really cast doubt on the goodness of this, hasn't it? We've become very confused recently about this. Our culture has cast doubt on God's goodness in assigning such identities, that God would tell us our identity is something that's become offensive, right? Our culture says that true freedom is kind of like being a blank slate, and you can, you know, make yourself whatever you want. You can develop your own identity, right? You decide what your identity is. You decide even whether you're male or female. But scripture, guys, says that we're not our own creators. God is. We're not our own creators. God is. God tells us what we are. God gives us our identity. It says in verse 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Guys, this is a huge gift. I don't know if you realize this. It is a huge gift to not have to be your own creator. It turns out that being your own creator, creating your own identity and creating your own values and creating your own reality is a massive burden. Kids used to just be burdened by trying to figure out what they were going to do for a living or who they might marry. Now they've been burdened with figuring out who they are, what their identity is, building their own reality, making their own values. Like This isn't something we were meant to bear. We weren't meant to be blank slates and creators of our own identity. We receive our identity as a gift. And it's a blessing, guys. It's a blessing, guys, just to be God's creatures. You guys realize you're God's creature? His creatures he loves, and you're one of those creatures. And he tells you who you are. He tells you what your role is in this world. And it's a gift because it's the very thing you were designed to do. It's a gift to receive to be exactly who he says we are. And God is good in creating us in his image, male and female. And and because we're God's image bearers, God wants as many of us as possible. Did you guys realize that? He wants as many of us as possible. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He blesses them. 
He says, okay, I want as many of you guys as possible. Go do it, right? And it's working. You realize there's almost 8 billion of us. That blessing has worked. God blessed us. He said, be fruitful. I know this is a season when you're getting to deal with a lot of crowds, right? You got Christmas crowds. How do you feel about Christmas crowds? You're like, right? Like, we don't like it, right? This text gives us a vision for what we should think when we see a massive crowd of people. We should be like, this is great. <laughs> the blessing in Genesis 1.28 is working. Look at all these image bearers. It's funny, we have such a negative attitude towards massive amounts of other people. God's like, the more the better. These people are made to be my children and to image me. I'm stoked there's so many of them. Isn't that great? We could take on a little bit more of that attitude, right? And then God is good in giving us his creation. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I will give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food. What's really neat about this account, this account of creation, is when you compare it to other accounts of creation. So in the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk, he creates people to be his slave so he doesn't have to work. That's the reason, right? And that kind of fits with that view of God, right? That he created human beings to be his slaves so he wouldn't have to work. This text is so much different. The truth is way better, guys. God created us to rule over creation for him as his royal family. Isn't that amazing? That's a totally different view of humanity. That's a way higher view of humanity, right? He created us to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over it. Not to exploit it, not to destroy it, but to cultivate this materials that he's given us to create God-honoring culture through our ordinary work. Like your ordinary work that you do day in and day out is a part of this, what's called the creation mandate, where you're actually creating God-honoring culture with the world. You're cultivating this place. And God is good to give us this world to, to cultivate and full of creatures. It says creatures that swim. Have you ever thought of how weird that is? He made creatures that swim in the water, that live in the water. He made creatures that fly, flying creatures. He made flying creatures for us. He made creatures that walk and creatures that creep. I have no idea which creatures these are. There's creatures creeping on the ground and God caused the world to teem with living animals. There's another pointer to the existence of God, that our world is fine-tuned for that to happen. Our world has been fine-tuned in all sorts of different ways to be filled with life, to be filled with creatures. Then there's other parts of the creation that are purely aesthetic, that aren't necessary for survival. So we look at parts of God's creation, we go, okay, I can see why that's there. That's so I can eat, and I can see why that's there. That's so we don't burn up from the sun, and I can see why that's there because that gives me water. But there's certain parts of the creation, guys, that God has put here that are purely aesthetic. You guys know the world is unnecessarily beautiful. It's not necessary for your survival that the world would be this beautiful. It's unnecessarily beautiful. You think of like sunrises and sunsets. They don't need to be this beautiful. They aren't needed for survival. And God has made them not only beautiful, but made you with the ability to perceive beauty. We have tortoises in our backyard. They're about this big. And no matter how amazing the sunsets are, I've never seen them look up. They're never like whoa, Uguay, did you see that? And he's like, yeah, Moses, that was amazing. Like, never. God has made us to be able to perceive things that aren't necessary for our survival. 
but they're beautiful for our enjoyment so that we be thankful and enjoy him in them. He's made details in this creation that are just purely aesthetic. I mean, take eclipses. This is one of my favorite examples is the eclipse. You guys realize that our sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, and yet it's 400 times further away, so that they just happen to be the same size from our vantage point. That's not necessary. I mean, it's necessary the sun be that far away. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) It's not necessary for the moon to perfectly fit over it. Okay? That's God going like, did you see what I did there? You know? That's purely aesthetic. That's purely so we can have eclipses. That's purely for his sense of beauty, for us to see. He's making, he's imagining us on earth and looking out at these goes, they're going to love this. Right? Or take the immensity of space. Space is unnecessarily large. It really is. There's no reason for it to be that big, is there? I don't know of a reason. It's unnecessarily large. Carl Sagan once said, the universe is a pretty big place. If it's just us, meaning no aliens, it simply seems like an awful waste of space. But what if it isn't about us? What if the immensity of space is God shouting forth his glory for us to see? What if the immensity of space is for us to think about the immensity of his love for his people, for his creation? Guys, God is good. He puts us in this glorious theater, this glorious world teeming with life to cultivate it for his glory. And he's doing this all out of the overflow of the love and fellowship and joy within the persons of the Trinity. No need on his part, purely giving out. Another thing God did before the creation of the world is that he provided a way to solve the problem of our sin. He did this before the foundation of the world. We all sense this, guys. I think I can get your full amen on this, that the world is not as it should be. I think anyone you talk to today, no one's going to be like, no, I think this is pretty much the way it should be. No. We all know that the world is not as it should be, right? And we all know that we are not as we should be. We're not as we should be. Something went wrong. When you look at this beautiful design that I just kind of unpacked there that God has done in creating the world, you think, yeah, but, well, that yeah, but is sin, right? That something has entered the world. We have let something into the world. We haven't imaged God as we ought to. If we're to be these image bearers, if we're to be these little mirrors on a 45-degree angle that bounce the glory of God out into the world, that people would see our lives and they go, man, God must be real and he must be good. He must be amazing because look at that guy or look at her, right? We don't do that now. Now people see us and they think, man, there can't be a good God if there's all this going on in the world, right? We're doing the opposite of what we should. We haven't imaged God as we ought to. We haven't treated others as image bearers of God as we ought to, right? Which gets us to that second question, what went wrong? Next week, Gabe's going to preach, and he's going to show us how we have rejected God's good gifts, and we've rebelled against his commands, and we've let sin into the world. We have done that as humanity. We let sin into the world. It's like that Greek story of Pandora's box, right? That we've opened the box of sin, and evil has gone loose into the world, and evil went loose into us, and we have no way to put it back in the box. Have you tried to put it back in the box? We can't put it back in the box, but God can, and he has a plan to do so. And that gets us to the third and fourth question. How will the world be made right, and how will I be made right? And God has promised to do both, to save us and the world that we live in. And so what we're going to look at this series in the covenants is through centuries of promises. Promises to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, And then through the prophets, the new covenant, God has again and again given us 
foretastes and promises of how he will make us right and how he'll make the world right through the coming of Christ. And this, guys, was ultimately planned even before creation by the three persons of the Trinity. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption, that before he even made the world, he came up with a plan to save you and to save the world. Isn't that amazing? This was an afterthought. He wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make this great place. This is kind of how it's presented. Something like, make this great place, and then he puts the people in. And he's like, what are they doing? Ah, oh, they ruined this. All right, well, let's do this, you know, and then that doesn't go well. And then he's like, gathers Israel together and gives them the Ten Commandments and all the law. And oh, that didn't work either. As if he's trying to like fix something over and over again. That's not what's happening. God's planned redemption from the very beginning through Christ before time, before there was matter or space or time to save us in the world. And each person of the Trinity committed to some different role of this redemption. Isn't that amazing? God the Father, before creation, if you're a Christian, God the Father, before creation, chose you. He chose you before he made the world. Ephesians 1.3 says this. Listen to this. This is about the Father. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You might want to go back and look at that. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, I know one thing that happened before the foundation of the world is that God himself chose to save you, knowing that there would be a fall, knowing that there would be sin, knowing that you would have significant sin, knowing that you could have been separated from him because of your sin. He chose to send Jesus for you. The cross didn't make God love you. I think this is one thing that we get wrong a lot of times. The cross did not make the Father love you. It's not like, you know, the Father's angry. Jesus is like, I got a solution. He steps in. He goes, hey, no, 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 stop. I'll take care of it. No. The cross did not make the Father love you. The Father's always loved you. The cross is an example of his love to you. The cross is because of his love to you. The cross did not make the Father love you. He's always loved you. The cross is the way that the Father has removed the sin barrier between you and him. Listen to the 17th century pastor, John Owen. He said this, We must remember, and this is specifically about God the Father, because I think some people have issues with God the Father. Listen to this. We must remember the Father's kind thoughts toward us, which have been from all eternity. If you're a Christian... God the Father has had kind thoughts toward you from all eternity. That's what Ephesians 1.4 says. Let this be the first thought we have of the Father, that he is full of eternal love for us. Let our hearts and thoughts be filled with his love to us, even though many discouragements lie in our way. Isn't that beautiful? You might say, well, I don't know how God could love me. I have this past. I have this significant past. I have worse than the rest of you. I have a past that I can't imagine why God would love me. You guys got to realize that the Father knew your past when it was future. That God the Father knew your sin before he even created the world. Your past was all before him. And yet he set his love on you to choose you and to seek you and to save you. So that's what God the Father was doing in the covenant of redemption before the creation of the world. He chose you. God the Son before creation, God the Son chose the cross. 1 Peter 1.19 says this, that we're saved by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was manifest 
in these last times for the sake of you all. Get this, God the Son, the one who we know from John 1 created all this, chose to take on the cross for you before he even made the world. Isn't that amazing? Are you guys quiet because it's blowing your mind? <laughs> I'm just wondering, you guys are real quiet. Okay, that's, that's good though. Yeah. I mean, I'm not looking for a lot of noise, but uh, I was just wondering, like, are you guys tripping out here or what's going on? You should be, so that's good. When God the Son created the world, he knew the cost. He knew it would cost him. Creation was easy, right? Speaking into existence. But redemption was going to be massively costly. And when he created the world, he knew what it would cost. I mean, think of God the Son, who would come in the person of Jesus. Think of him inventing trees, okay? Trees are amazing little machines. You guys realize this? So a tree takes carbon dioxide and water in the presence of sunlight and makes sugar and oxygen. That's pretty impressive, right? Takes CO2 and water in the presence of sunlight and it makes O2, it makes oxygen and sugar. Your body takes sugar and oxygen and makes CO2 and water. How convenient. Like, this is amazing, right? So as he's making these trees, God the Son is inventing these trees. He knows that one day he's going to carry one of those trees on his back to the place of crucifixion. For us, for you. Or think about when, you know, God the Son, he's creating iron atoms, you know? And he takes like 30 neutrons and he takes 26 protons and then he, and then he causes 26 electrons to start circling around them. And he's just making these like crazy, you know? Huge factory of them. And he's causing these, these iron atoms to be made. Like he knew that one day there would be nails made of iron that were going to pierce him to take away your sin. Or, or think about, you know, when God the Son is forming the first human ankles and wrists on Adam out of the dust of the ground. He knew that he too would have a body with ankles and wrists. And that one day he would be suspended from them to bear away all your guilt and shame. Or, or think about God the Son as he's breathing life into that first human Adam. He knew that one day he would breathe out his last breath on the cross as the second Adam, the faithful one dying all the way, obedient all the way to death. Or, or think about God the Son, as he's, he's all done creating, right? And he rests on the seventh day. He knows that one day he too will rest on the seventh day from his redemptive work, but he'll rest in a tomb. Or, or think about him, you know, creation's done, the day of rest is done, and he's enjoying that first dawn of the first week after creation. He knows that one day he's going to rise at dawn, victorious over death, victorious over sin and evil in the first day of the new creation. Isn't that amazing? Guys, we have a way better answer to where this world is headed. I don't know if you realize, but like our culture is awfully, awfully obsessed with the end of the world. Have you noticed that? You probably haven't noticed because you're awfully obsessed with the end of the world. It's weird, okay? Like, I, I haven't been to many cultures, but I would imagine that, you know, this level of obsession with the end of the world is probably pretty strange. And both sides have their own way we're going to go out, right? Maybe there's, not more, there's more than two sides, but there's all kinds of ways we're going to go out, right? Guys, we have a way better answer where this world is headed. We know that the end of this world is God making it new, that the end is not the end. And we know it's true because it's already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, that's the beginning of the new creation. 
We know the entire world is going to go through something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he has already been raised. So before creation, covenant of redemption, the Father chooses you, the Son chooses the cross, the Spirit chooses to make all of this yours. And that's his role. Is the Spirit promises to open your eyes to believe whenever that happened. There was a time, if you're a Christian, that you came to see Jesus for who he was, and he was so attractive, you're like, all right, I don't know what I was thinking before, but I got to give my whole life to him, right? He causes you to believe, and he unites you to Christ so that you can receive all that Jesus is, right? Both his forgiveness and his life. That's what the Spirit covenanted to do. I just asked you this morning, do you see right now, are you seeing right now how good God is? Are you seeing how good he is? Are you amazed by the goodness of God? Are you seeing how good he is, not just in creating this amazing world and creating you and creating you in his image and loving you and giving you everything he's given you, but also that he would save you, that he would send his own son to die for you, that he would do everything possible so that you could enjoy the new world with him? Are you seeing how good God is? If you are, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. That's God actually working in you. Like, be encouraged, because normal people don't see that. What you're seeing of the goodness of God in both creation and redemption is something that you could only be seeing if the Holy Spirit's at work in you. And if that's new for you today, if that's this morning for the first time, I just say, receive Jesus today. He's that good. You can have him. You just reach out to him and ask him to save you. Ask him to fill you, and he will. And the Spirit will unite you to Christ, and you'll receive all the righteousness of Jesus, and you'll see the, receive the forgiveness of Jesus, and you're going to see the life of Jesus, that Jesus is going to live through you if you'll come to him. Have you received Jesus Christ? Have you received Jesus as your Savior and your King? And if you have, there's good news. We have a little image here of the Lord's Supper. That's one of the signs of the covenant that God has made with us to save us in Jesus. Another one is baptism. If you're seeing the goodness of God, if you've received Jesus Christ, get baptized. Take the Lord's Supper with us. These aren't acts of righteousness, as Josh was talking about. These are ways that God confirms his covenant to us. So that's the first one. That's the covenant of redemption. Don't worry, that was all of it. I know it sounded like that was the first point. So that's the covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption. It's, it's not on here. We weren't there. We didn't even exist. The world didn't exist. And the covenant of redemption really just reminds us that God does all the saving. In case you were wondering, you weren't there at all when he planned all this. You weren't there when he planned this whole plan to save you through Jesus Christ. You were saved, guys, by the coordinated love of the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? You say, I knew God loved me. Yes, God does love you. The Father loves you in electing love. The Son loves you in giving his own body to die for you. The Spirit loves you in coming into your heart and making you new. God, as Trinity, has saved you. This is a gift. We just receive it by faith. Just like we're going to receive the bread and the cup as a gift, we just take it. You can this morning take Jesus as your own Savior. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, so that was a lot, Lord. Those are weighty things to think about, things that we have no experience or context to even conceive. And Lord, it just reminds us that you are God and we are not, and you're the Savior and we are not. And Lord, we're so thankful because we really had no way to save ourselves. We've all gotten ourselves into such a bad place in sin. 
that there was no way to dig ourselves out. And yet you sent your son Jesus to come down into the pit for us. To take on a real body, to die for our sins, to be raised again. And then to come to us today through the Spirit. So we pray, Lord, as we worship you, as we think upon you, we pray, Lord, that you just continue to stir up love for you because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.